Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, uh, where we're talking today with some folks from the Charles A. Dana Center at the University of Texas in Austin. So we're pretty excited about that. And today we are joined by, we're we're actually doing um, several interviews with different people from the Charles A. Dana Center because the work that they do is just so interesting. And I've been really lucky. I have had the opportunity to work with them on at least two different um, initiatives. One was with the Department of Defense Education Activities, and that was a four-year summer program. At least my part was. I know they did it all year long. And then also the Louisiana State Math Initiative. So I really wanted to talk to all different people from different areas. So today we're joined by Shelly Ledoux and Jackie Lejeune, who are in the leadership kind of area of the Charles A. Dana Center, so that when they have these big initiatives, they are there supporting the leaders and helping the leaders basically make systemic change. So Shelly and Jackie, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and give us your title and kind of maybe give us a little background on what the Charles A. Dana Center actually does. Thank you, Karen. Hi, everyone. I'm Shelley Ledoux, and um, I am currently serving as the interim manager of the K-12 services team. And uh, at the Dana Center, our mission is really centered around ensuring that uh, students, particularly those that are traditionally marginalized and underserved, have equitable access to excellent math and science education. And so we do that in several ways. Our team works with educators, um, administrators, policymakers, and other partners to dismantle barriers in systems and then creating and scaling types of math and science education innovations that support student success. We've been at this work for a little over 25 years, so we're excited to be here to talk to you all tonight. But thank goodness the quality of the staff has improved over the years, far better than it was 15 years ago. And that is a (laughs) reference, subtle, of Tim's um, stint at the Dana Center 15 years ago. Right, right. I think I think you are missed, Tim. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was going to say that, but Greenhouse okay, beat me okay, to it. All right, okay. Shelly, I got to ask you a question, though, because um, I want you to unpack a couple of things you said. I mean, you just said a lot of great things, which, and I, I jokingly talk about my experience at the Dana Center, but I have a deep respect and admiration for the the vision and mission and, and great work that the Dana Center has done over the years. Um, so you used the phrase equitable access, and then you said to excellent education. What do you mean by excellent education? What does that look like to you and to the Dana Center? So I think excellent math and science education looks like students making sense and taking responsibility for their own learning in the classroom and teachers facilitating learning. Um, so that learning is meaningful and so that learning is long-lasting and that students can use the skills and the knowledge that they're uh, practicing collaboratively with their fellow students, you know, to move them forward in their educational or career aspirations. And I have a question too, but I did want Jackie to hop in and introduce herself and and add anything to what Shelley already said about the Dana Center. So um, I am a professional learning facilitator Um, And I primarily work from the leadership side of things, which I think we'll probably get into a little more discussion about what all that entails. Um, My 
As far as from a content, Shelly's spoken about um, how we do work in math and science instruction. I'm trying to improve math and science instruction. And uh, I, my strength is more on the math side, but I'm, I also support with some of the science work, specifically when it comes to science leadership work as well. Regarding Tim's question about what excellent math and science instruction looks like, I agree with everything that Shelly said. And while she was talking, my only addition to that would be basically it's for most of us, I think the complete opposite of what math and science instruction was like when we were in school, right? Like a complete shift from it being like teacher centered to being student centered. And that that's really the focus is on what's best for students, not what's most sometimes what's most convenient or what's, what's more led by what the teacher wants to do or thinks is best coming from their perspective, but making that shift to it's really focused on students driving that instruction and what's best for them. It's also what most teachers have been trained to do, which is the traditional teacher lecture, right? So you're, you're switching their barriers. And so this kind of leads into what Shelley had said, and I, maybe you can both address this um, from the leadership point in particular. Um, Shelley, you said dismantling barriers and systems. So what does that mean? And how is the Dana Center and, and your role um, making that happen? So I think one common barrier that students face you know, to excellent education is they simply don't have access to rigorous instruction, right? There are a lot of, you know, policies in schools that are in place to prevent students from accessing, um, you know, higher level classes like AP classes or... um, IB, the International Baccalaureate, yeah. Right, IB classes, right? So students have to, you know, demonstrate some level of proficiency in classes to be allowed into those classes. And so they are never given a chance to do that rigorous work. Um, And then we, you know, we know that bias exists in schools and, you know, teachers and counselors that are kind of the gatekeepers to these classes, you know, have preconceptions in their minds about what Black students can do, about what Latinx students can do, about what Indigenous students can do. And that influences you know, how often they can get into those classes. And so does that then connect to this systems approach? Because that's how I always thought of the Dana Centers, like in the two programs that I, or initiatives I was involved in. It wasn't just training the teachers on how to change their way of teaching, but you guys, Shelly in particular, um, were off training the leadership. And I always wondered what was happening there and, you know, how, why, it was very interesting to me that it wasn't just teachers you were trying to change, you were trying to change the whole system. And so can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and what, how that is impacting systemic change throughout the mathematics teaching and science? So change is really difficult for almost everyone, <laughs> no matter what uh, organizational you know, system they work in. But for teachers, it's, it's you know, no less difficult And, you know, you give teachers skills and they go back and practice them, but they're going to get tired and they're going to get frustrated and they're going to run into obstacles. And if they don't have support to help them through those trouble spots um, from their leadership, then they're not going to persist and continue to use the new learning that they have. They're going to fall back to old ways because it's easier. And so we try to give leaders a picture of what uh, teachers have learned, but we also try to give them kind of experiences to let them know what we want instruction to look like in the classroom. So they need to have experiential learning themselves. What does good instruction look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? 
um, so that they know what they're looking for in classrooms. And then we also try to give leaders tools so that they can support teachers, both on an individual level and at a group level. So, you know, principals in a school can help teachers individually when they're struggling for, you know, a variety of reasons. Everybody's human in an education system and everybody's going to be in a different place and going to struggle in different ways. And they also need to help groups of teachers that are working together to learn and plan. So what does that look like? So are you meeting with them as much as you're meeting with, as, as say the trainers are meeting with the teachers, or is it just different types of? So Jackie could back me up on this. So we wish that we had <laughs> that makes that much access to leaders. Oftentimes, you know, we are lucky if we have a day or two with leaders, um, you know, because they're very busy, they, they have a lot to do. So um, we try to give them, we encourage leaders to always participate in the learning that their teachers are doing. It's really great if leaders will sit down at the table with their teachers and roll up their sleeves and dig in alongside them. It shows that they really care about the learning that teachers are doing, and it shows that they are on board to this to support them through the whole process. Yeah, I do remember in several of the countries that I went to with the Department of Defense that that a lot of the administrators actually went through the training with the teachers, and mm-hmm. I think they, that was great. And it's really impactful if the leaders will actually do the work right with the teachers and not you know sit in the back as observers, but really get involved. And so that's what we try to encourage. And a lot of times um, when we try to surface from when we're working with teachers or um, coaches and we'll give them an opportunity to uh, reflect and try and get out what their um, apprehensions are about the new learning that they have and going back and implementing it or barriers that they um, think that they will encounter or that they have encountered. A lot of times it boils down to barriers that they are, whether they perceive them as being in place at their sites, or if it is in fact a barrier that's existing, a lot of times what will surface is that they feel like these structures are in place that are prohibiting them from being able to implement things, whether they feel like they don't have support from administration, or if they don't have, if the schedule gives the impression that there isn't support from administration, or um, feedback that they're getting. If that's a perception that they have, it's going to make them a lot more likely to fall back into their old habits or, you know, do what they think is what's supported by administration. So if we don't have leaders there to support the teachers and and hear these concerns and barriers that are perceived by the teachers, then we're not going to move forward and there's not going to be any capacity built. They're going to try the things once and then it's going it, to, when it doesn't succeed or when they don't feel like they have the support, it's going to be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, and these are a lot of the work that we're doing with them is something that's going to take persistence and they need to feel that they're supported because it is a huge shift in their thinking. What kind of barriers are the, do the leaders perceive? I, I mean, you, you've been talking about the barriers the teachers perceive and the administration needs to support and recognize. I'm curious when you meet with leaders, I know the time element, I mean, from even when I was doing PD for publishers, I always used to say that the workshops we offered for leaders were the most often requested and the most often canceled workshops I ever had. Um, mm-hmm. 
But uh, so when, I mean, other than the time element, which you've already alluded to, what are other barriers that principals perceive or other leaders, coaches, instructional leaders perceive as uh, barriers to the change that um, the Dana Center through the research um, that you, uh, of which you're aware, are trying to help schools implement? I think, Tim, one of the, the big things is that oftentimes teacher training comes from the curriculum department's you know, in school systems. And this, and then the, the principals are accountable to a different, um, you know, administrator at the central office than the curriculum folks are. And so curriculum folks um, sort of, you know, have an agenda for professional learning that's based on, you know, what we know about is best practice for students. And they bring this training to the schools. But administrators, right, are not accountable to these curriculum folks and the administrators are often accountable to different people. So there's sometimes communication barriers between those two parts of the school system. So it's really important to work with not just school level leaders, but work with district level leaders as well, so that they're all on the same page. Now, do you work with, um, say, state leaders? Because I would imagine some of the barriers are, you know, like standardized testing. Standardized testing is not conducive to this type of inquiry to learning of mathematics, right? So that's often a barrier teachers perceive as I, I have to cover the material. I can't do this type of teaching. So do you ever try to get state leaders as part of your initiatives as as well? Because like that seems important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We partner with states all of the time. But oftentimes, you know, states, you know, only have so many levers that they can use because schools are are generally local controlled entities, right, school districts. Um, So states have some levers like, you know, what curriculum uh, schools can adopt and um, what kind of training might go along with that curriculum and how well aligned is that training and that curriculum with the state assessments. So those are all factors for sure. So we definitely want to talk to um, everyone we can uh, in the system, including the state leaders. But I think you're right, Karen, about the accountability to the test. So teachers feel accountability to the test, and they feel that because they feel accountability to their administrators who want them to do well on the test. (laughs) Right. And so how, I mean, that just seems like such a huge barrier to overcome. And I know change takes time. So how are you guys kind of battling those two different things? Because teachers aren't going to change the first year you do this, right? And I know like the Department of Defense initiative was a four-year initiative. And then I know there's others, but Louisiana was a three-year, right? So that's a long time. So how are you helping teachers and leaders address the possible test uh, deficits or whatever that might occur as they're making these changes? Or what do they call that? They call that the, the drop, the testing drop or something? when you'd make a change. Right. The implementation dip. Right? That's it. <laughs> Thank you. I knew there was an official yeah. term. Right. So oftentimes, you know, you have this sort of uptick, you know, and people are, are doing well and you're collecting data, benchmark data, for example, and you see that your results are improving. But when, you, you know, this kind of new learning and the shift in teaching that Jackie was talking about earlier is is difficult to sustain. And so oftentimes you do experience kind of this implementation dip where test scores go down temporarily. And then people get frustrated. And so they give up, 
and, you know, throw out the initiative entirely instead of persisting for the amount of time that it would take to see success. So are your, does the Dana Center only agree to do systemic type of changes if it's long-term? Because I can't imagine say, yeah, we're going to come in for a month or so and change some things because <laughs> it's not going to be effective if you do that. Yeah. So I feel like I'm dominating here. So I want to let Jackie weigh in, but like, it is definitely our strong preference to work systemically and over time. And I think if we had the luxury of only working that way, we would, right? But the fact of the matter is (laughs) we don't necessarily have that luxury. So um, we try to share that philosophy as much as we can with, um, potential, I guess, clients for lack of a better word, um, and, and try to explain, you know, the reasoning behind wanting to bring leadership involved and, and not just doing a one-off or a two-off or even a one year long scheduling of support. But that the fact of the matter is, is that that's not necessarily what everyone's looking for. I mean, I think that's, that's part of like going back to even what you guys brought up assessment and, and how that ends up, you know, binding a lot of leaders, teachers, but, you know, to wanting this quick fix that'll get the scores that year instead of seeing the big picture that like, right, but we're always having to get this quick fix every single year. And, and we're just putting a bandage over it every single year, instead of looking at the big picture of how can we actually impact our students as mathematicians and scientists for the long haul, right? And like, so that we're not constantly having to go back in and, and, and let's just get the test scores up this year. We, this is the year, we just got to get them fixed. We, we don't have time. We're like, we just got to keep our head above water. And, and a lot of times that's when districts or schools are at that point, that's when they're seeking out outside support, right? They're like, oh, crap, like we are in a spot where we need help. Well, when they're at that spot, they're, they're looking for the quick fix. Right. Let's bring someone in where they're not thinking like, okay, let's come up with a solid three-year plan on how we're going to shift the mindset of our teachers and shift the mindset of our leaders in our schools so that we're really going to have sustainable change happening. They're not thinking that way. They're thinking, okay, let's find some money and let's bring some people in who are experts but we're going to, we don't necessarily want their expertise on how to make this sustainable. We want their expertise for the test next two months down the road. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Again, like ideally if we could sustain the Dana center by only working with those clients who, who are, are looking for our support, that's really going to, you know, make that impact and on a grand scale, we'd love to do that. Well, and for the reasons you articulated, it gets really complicated. I mean, we've already talked about the importance of this only works if there's support for teachers, if there's support to two different types of leadership, really. There's the instructional leaders, as well as, um, uh, for lack of a better phrase, I say accountability leaders, like principals, superintendents. And then there's also the piece that we won't talk about much today, but plays a role in this as well, which is curriculum. Um, you can't do that in a come here and solve our problem in two months um, piece. And I, to that end, I wanted to get your take. There's a couple dynamics in, in uh, professional learning 
one's been around for a long time and the other one's relatively new. And I'm just curious to get your take on two of the things that schools and districts often do to try to find, to save time and money. So one is the whole train the trainers approach where like, come in and we'll give you two months to work with our two or three folks and then tell them what to do. And the second one is um, what your take is on um, asynchronous web-based professional learning. So the, the trainer of trainers model is kind of what we're doing in Louisiana actually right now. So um, we are training cohorts of teacher leaders who have some turnkey professional learning that we provide that they take back to their regions and work with their teachers. And I think that model works really well. And it's, you know, a financially sustainable model for a lot of districts if you have the right people as your trainers. So I think that's the key. But but speaking as someone who was doing some of that um, before COVID hit, um, a lot of the teach what happens a lot of times is somebody are, they're they're just told this is what you're doing now, even though they may not be the right person for that. So yeah, that, that's difficult. There has to be a process for vetting the trainers that you select. You know, there has to be um, sufficient time and um, resources available to support that trainer once you do. You know. Put them through the program. And then to your other point, um, Tim, about asynchronous work, I would not prefer that as a school leader because there's, there's very little accountability for teachers working on their own in front of a computer to ensure that they're really, you know, fulfilling whatever the requirements are of the professional learning and that they have experiences so that they can turn that learning around into practice back in their schools. So to speak to that, so what has happened in this lovely time of COVID where obviously you're not allowed to go to the schools and the districts as you used to. So what is it you guys are doing if it's not, say, an asynchronous? Well, we've learned a lot about um, remote teaching um, in a trial by fire sort of way. And so we are delivering our professional learning services Um, using the university's learning management system, Canvas, and and we are doing as much as we can synchronously with teachers, you know, while keeping in mind the struggles of being in front of the computer for hours and hours on end. Um, So we keep our face-to-face engagement over the computer with teachers short, and we give them tools and strategies to go back and practice with their students, and then we come back and reflect on that and problem-solve once they share their experiences with us. Um, And they do have some asynchronous study that they're doing, but we try to really keep that balanced with um, times that they can check in with a professional learning facilitator like Jackie and um, get answers to their questions and things like that. So Jackie, what does that mean? Are you, are you like on call? You have office hours? (laughs) We have, we do office hours. Um, Honestly. Yeah. yeah, That's what we do. We do office hours and then also make ourselves available. um, Like if they have questions that they can email us questions, because I think, my my thought when listening to Shelly talking about the asynchronous, my other comment to that is that, you know, I know that even in a small setting face-to-face or a large setting or in a PLC, like the first time, a lot of times you learn something new, things can be interpreted through the lens that you came into it listening with, right? So I feel like when doing asynchronous learning without some sort of synchronous piece to it, some sort of contact with a facilitator, you're going to interpret it through the lens that you came to that asynchronous setting with. 
right? And without getting any clarification from a facilitator or opportunity to have discussion about what you took away, um, you could walk away only hearing those pieces that validate where you were already at versus walking away with, you know, maybe some crucial new learning that was, was there in that asynchronous piece, but, but without anybody there to kind of help navigate and facilitate you to that. I, I just, I, I think that that's, what's really hard about asynchronous. I did my doctorate research on online learning and professional development. And that is one of the things is facilitation, having a facilitator, whether it's, you know, at the same time or they do something on their own and then they come back and reflect on it. That is the best way to learn without a facilitator. You're exactly right. You're, you're coming in with your own beliefs and you're only going to take away the parts that confirm those beliefs. You're not going to change. I think another key piece of that though, too, is having um, guided conversations with your colleagues, with your peers, right? And reflecting on what's really going on on your campus and with your students in your context. And you can't do that just sitting in front of a computer by yourself. So I have a question about going back to the leadership. Are there things that you have found have really changed leaders' perspectives about what math should look like? And I'm just thinking back to my own when I was in the, you know, the K-12 environment. If they came in and my classroom was loud and noisy and hands-on, I often got a bad observation because it looked like my room was chaos. So I feel, you know, are there things that you are doing that, you know, really help a leader understand this math or science way of teaching that you have found helpful? Yeah, I think they need the experiential learning, right? I think they need to dive in and actually do some math in the way that we want to see students working or do some science in the way that we want to see students working. And once they have that experience, you know, oftentimes that's actually really effective for leaders because many times they're not math professionals. And so they really do learn something about math or they really do learn something about science when they participate, you know, in a professional learning activity like that. And they come away with this, sort of feeling of, you know, wow, I want all of my students to have this great aha moment that I just had about this content. And, and so, you know, they appreciate it more and they understand, you know, how difficult it is for a teacher to pull that off. And so they're more, you know, likely to um, persist in supporting that teacher when they struggle as well. I actually want to ask a question that unfortunately is going to take us back about 10 minutes, but then the conversation flowed elsewhere. But I still want to ask the question because just thinking in terms of the people who might listen to a podcast like this, um, folks who see themselves as potential teacher leaders, um, folks who feel confident they know what they're doing and have expertise they want to share. Jackie, you talked about the need to vet when we do train the trainers, vetting who those trainers are going to be, who those teacher leaders are going to be. If I'm a, aspire, a teacher aspiring to believe I could be a teacher leader, I have something to offer there, um, what would be those kind of qualities, characteristics that make someone a quality trainer or quality teacher leader, um, whether, whether they're working as a contractor or even within their own school setting? Um, I would say that the best teacher leaders are going to also have the same qualities that we want to see teachers have in the classroom, right? So... If, and Jackie can probably speak to this better than I can because she has a lot of coaching experience, but right, like the first rule of coaching is you're not telling people what they're doing wrong. You're helping them realize what they're doing wrong and what they can do better on their own. 
And so teacher leaders are going to be non-threatening. They're going to be able to build good relationships with folks. They're going to be able to help teachers, you know, realize their own strengths and their own areas where they need to grow and set goals and set incremental, you know, action steps that they can take to meet those goals. What you said, Shelly, is exactly right. Like best practices are best practices, right? If, if you truly believe in student-centered learning and you, you truly believe in um, going off of what Shelly said, like not just giving the answers, really helping your students understand their strengths and, and discover their own misconceptions or mis... I'm trying to train myself to not use the word misconceptions, alternative conceptions or um, understand where they're at with their understanding and, and, and have that drive to move forward. Like if you really believe that that's best practices, right, in learning, you would be applying that when working with adults as a leader as well. But not being a know-it-all, like really having a partnership with the teachers that you're working with and, seeing, and being a lifelong learner yourself and, and working to grow with the teachers that you're supporting and seeing yourself as a support for them. I think is a huge quality. And I think, again, like if you really believe in what you're trying to communicate to the teachers that you're working with, your work with your teachers should mirror that. So I guess like not just following that say as I say thing, but your actions are modeling exactly what you're trying to help your teachers implement in the classroom. So I'm going to I'm going to rephrase crassly what you just said and then tell me if I go down the wrong road cuz this is the guy who left the Dana Center and then went to the dark side and worked in publishing for 12 years. You're telling folks they have to be able to sell it. They have to know it and they have to, they have to sell it. I mean just like I I did a workshop several years ago with Milwaukee uh, coaches. And we did it. We spent a week and we actually used as the foundation for the workshop, Daniel Pink's book to sell as human. I mean, as teachers, we're selling every day, right? I mean, we go into our classroom and we're selling mathematics to our students. And as a coach, you have to sell it to the teachers. You talked about this, um, Shelly, a little bit ago when you said, you know, there's different types of leadership and instructional leaders often aren't accountability leaders. So teachers, uh, an instructional leader or a coach, you can't force a teacher to do something. You have to sell it to them. They have to see the inherent value and then own it for themselves. Yes, but I think even beyond selling it, I think you have to like live it and breathe it, right? Like that's the way that you're going to sell it, not just selling it through your words and I'm I'm going to give trainings. You need to model it and model it not just by modeling it in classroom, modeling it for them to see, but modeling it when you're facilitating PLCs with teachers, modeling it like your those same questioning strategies that you're trying to get teachers to use in the classroom. You use those questioning strategies in conversations with teachers, right? So like you're literally living and breathing what you are trying to sell them, I guess. So I would take it a step further than just selling it. <laughs> I mean, I think especially uh, just the whole questioning, like modeling how you question and appropriate, you know, not just yes, no things you're doing. What they see you do is what you want them doing. And that's one of the things having worked with the Dana Center as a trainer. So you guys trained us to go then work with teachers. I loved, and I know you're going to disagree with me. I loved the, uh, the whole model that you guys have. So basically we all get a script with amazing questions. And then we are taught by the Dana Center people who are modeling that script. And then we get the script and we have to practice it. And, and this is where you guys are going to laugh at me. 
I disliked the practice of that, that we had to do at our trainings, but it was so important that we basically felt, you know, really understood the script. And then when we went to present, we made it our own, but it was basically showing us that here's these great questions you guys modeled for us. And we kind of really took that. And then we have our little script. We didn't follow the script. We, we, took it and made it our own, but also then modeled with the teachers we were working with that same thing. So that whole modeling is such a huge part of helping someone become a leader, I think, um, and giving them the tools. So you guys kind of gave us the good questioning skills and that type of thing. So related to that, I have a question. Have you ever, I mean, you work with teachers and teacher leaders all the time. Have you come to a point where you're like, this person is is not going to help? I mean, and that must happen. I mean, no names or anything. But what do you do in that case when you're like, this leader is not going to help us? How do you address that <laughs> when you're working with someone? Yeah, a lot of times that depends on the relationship that we have with the district or the state that we're working in. Um, you know, but there have certainly been times. So th- what, what I'll say is like we want teachers to value and honor all of the lived experiences that every one of their students brings to the classroom. And so we want to have that same sort of growth mindset with the teachers that we're working with. And so, you know, I think every teacher can learn and grow. It's just going to take some teachers longer than others, you know, because they come from different experiences, different backgrounds. They have different pressures that they're under and they're just going to grow at different rates. So, you know, sometimes you have to have a conversation and say, you know, you're not ready. Um, We need to do some more of that practicing that Karen just talked about, right? But I think just like our students deserve opportunities to grow and get better, the teachers do as well. We, we don't want to approach any work that we do, you know, from a deficit position. Everyone has something to bring to the table. Yeah, and I can, I can say coming from uh, as a facilitator or working with a group, you get a sense pretty quick kind of who the, the people are that, that maybe are coming from... They have, they have more room for growth <laughs> um, or maybe aren't even as open to the message that, you know, like they aren't as open to what we're selling. And personally, as a facilitator, because you guys had asked kind of what, what would be characteristics in somebody who's trying to be a leader or a facilitator um, in this way, I like I, I make it my goal that that person is going to make growth there. I'm going to find where they're like the same way with a student, like Shelley was saying, where their level of understanding is. And I'm, I'm going to bring them up. Like I, I set it as a personal goal to win them over by the time I'm done working with them. So that, so that, you know, to be honest, like for me, that works. I feel like with my style of facilitation and personality and the relationships that I try and build with the teachers and leaders that I'm working with, that, that, tends to generally work in my favor. I think the reasons that that people resist change are not always what we think they are, right? Like, you know, people are negative and sometimes we have an automatic reaction and think, oh, this person is just, you know, doesn't like me or stuck in their old ways and they don't care about the students. And none of that is typically true, right? Like these are all human beings that have lives that are complicated and stresses. And, you know, teaching is hard work and leading schools is hard work. And so oftentimes that resistance is a manifestation of, you know, just frustration. And you can, you can work with that and you can help people improve. Uh, It's, it's frustration. It's fear of failure. I mean, I think it's, how do you, how do you help encourage someone 
to look at a different paradigm for instruction with uh, while still validating them as a professional because you have it the, who's taught for 25 years this way and this is how they've done it for 25 years how do you validate that experience so that the person feels like okay it's not that i've been a loser or teacher for 25 years i mean there's a there's a, a trick to that well and that's the way they learned too right right exactly yeah and they learn just fine so why can't everybody else do it that way <laughs> I'm going to ask a question that was on my list that's going to sort of going to take the conversation in another direction. But Shelly, when you first gave your introduction to the Dana Center, you talk about the Dana Center's specific commitment to supporting students, uh, students of color um, and students from uh, marginalized communities. So I guess my question is, what does that look like and how is it different? Because everything we've talked about in this conversation, I'm like, well, that makes sense for any school, regardless of the students. So how does the Dana Center's commitment, which I know is a very real and true commitment, um, so how does that reflect in how you guys approach your work? Yeah, so that's a tricky question. So one of the things that's important is, you know, you asked about this before, is the work that we actually choose to do, Right. You know, Louisiana, for example, has high numbers of minoritized students, and we don't want those students to fall through the cracks, and many of them are. So, you know, part of that is in the types of work that we do and the the systems that we choose to work with. But the thing that you said a minute ago, yeah, this is really great for all students, um, and that's true, but students that are, you know, minoritized are disproportionately affected by poor teaching practices. (laughs) So improving teaching practices um, across the board is going to have a greater impact on those populations. That is a great point. Yeah, phenomenal. So I know there's a lot of work that goes behind all these incredible trainings and supports and things that you do. So are you guys, you specifically involved in, so if you get a new contract or client or whatever, do you do you just repurpose some of the things or do you try to streamline, uh, make it fit the specific state or district that you're working with? How does that work? So we wish we could do that because that would be a lot easier on us, <laughs> right. right? But every system is unique and every system has different challenges. Every system has a different population of teachers, a different population of students, a different population of leaders. So every a partnership that we engage in needs to be, you know, thoughtfully planned and with all stakeholders involved. And so we almost never recycle work. <laughs> Oftentimes we have source material that can inform our work or that can be a starting point, but every client will get um, very unique attention. And I think even beyond what the, the client's asking for, for example, so we have an Instructional Leadership Academy. Right, and and we work with those leaders. Um, on average, like we will have six or seven times where, like, it, it, when we were meeting face to face, full days of meeting with these leaders. Right. Well, when you're meeting with people and getting to know personalities, even just that in the group, there may be shifts that we see that okay, we need to take this piece that we were waiting till the end. To bring into the picture, but based on the conversations that we're having and the needs that they're expressing to us, or even the the personalities that are in the, the cohort that we're working with, we really need to bring this other piece and not wait till the end to bring this in. Now, I've been with them for two with Dana Center for two years now, and I don't know that I've ever given the same training twice. 
Well, I was just going to say, you know, we recently did um, a leadership session in Florida that was a multi-day engagement with their instructional coaches. You know, Jackie and I met after every session that we did and before we returned for the next um, set of sessions, we made adjustments to our plan because we were learning from our participants and we wanted to make sure that we were meeting their needs. And sometimes their needs are not obvious until you're actually in conversations with them. So was the Florida workshop, uh, how to do quality instruction even when your standards are horrible? (laughs) How do you really feel, Tim? That's not going to make the podcast, right? (laughs) So actually, that's a really interesting question, though, because I would imagine, like, okay, Texas, obviously you guys are, you know, located in Texas, so you probably do a lot of work with some Texas districts or schools. How do you work when the standards aren't supporting necessarily the way that you want the teachers to be teaching. Like that must be a bit of a barrier right there. Yeah. So I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like we know students learn best in student centered environments where students are driving the learning, where students questions, you know, are what we're um, sort of leveraging and where students, Jackie said it earlier, uh, alternate conceptions are leveraged to promote rich discourse in the classroom. Right. Um, So regardless of what the standards are, we know that those teaching practices support meaningful learning for students. And some standards are definitely more, you know, geared towards memorization of facts and, you know, teachers stress out about assessment tests and things like that. But if students are learning in these meaningful ways, the tests are going to take care of themselves. I will say, though, that, you know, part of a piece that we can leverage when working with Texas is that they do still have process standards, right? That describe how students engage with the mathematics. So that's something that helps us. Like you're not going to get students to engage with the mathematics by teaching a lecture, rote procedural, right? Like that's lecturing. That's not going to happen. So you won't be teaching your standards. You'll be leaving out a whole piece if you aren't embracing <laughs> or shifting the way that you're teaching, right? So that, that kind of helps. It's interesting you brought up Florida standards though, because I'm from Florida, but I haven't even seen what their brand new standards are. And our work with them was prior to them adopting this shift of completely now. Oh, don't, you, you will cry. You will, you will cry. I'm sure. I'm sure because I was there with the work of the, sh- like I was there the whole way I found out about the Dana Center was when we first adopted Common Core and I was trained by the Dana Center and was part of the group that rolled out those standards. And then we had to, oh no, we can't call them Common Core anymore. We've got to shift the name of the standards to, you know, to the Mathematics Florida standards and went through all of that work. And it made me want to cry when I heard the news that, oh, nope, this is going to be a platform, uses a political platform to completely get rid of all that hard work. And that's, I think, another reason when Shelly was talking about sometimes we don't know why people are, are hesitant or resistant to change. Well, with education, that happens so much that that's usually a big reason why there ends up being resistance to change is that I've tried to make this shift three or four times. And every time I'm told now shift back to this other way of thinking. And I, I, so that cycle ends up happening, too. Yep, exactly. I am curious to make it a little bigger. Well, two things. First of all, a little shout out to Texas because you did you talked about the process standards that Texas still has. And Texas actually historically predated the Common Core with the idea that process or how you're learning should be part of the standards. 
So, I mean, a little shout out to the great state uh, of Texas. But my bigger question for both of you, because standards have become so politicized, and Florida is an extreme example, but it's happened in many states, does that ever become a barrier in terms of your work with leaders or with teachers? Probably it does. But again, that just goes back to, you know, our process for developing the work that's appropriate for whatever system we're working with really is about diving deep into what their context is. And if the standards are part of that context that are problematic, then it's something that we have to work with and address. I think we try not to look at standards as a barrier, and we try to focus on what good instruction is. So related to that, and I know the, there's been all sorts of different research on this over the years, but I'm curious where the Dana Center is now. So we talk about standards. What, what about curriculum? What role does uh, the development implementation of curriculum play as part of your systemic work? I think the evidence of uh, work that we do around curriculum in Louisiana is, says that curriculum plays a strong role, right? Because Louisiana has a pretty robust you know, system for evaluating curricula, really as robust as ed reports. Um, and they do it internally and they have what they call tier one, two, and three curricula. And they want all of their districts implementing tier one, which is the high quality curricula that they rate it. And all of the work that we're doing in training teacher leaders is around implementation with fidelity of high quality curricula. So they want teachers to be able to use their curricula wisely and to make uh, instructional planning decisions around that curriculum in collaborative groups. So that's really the, the point of the work that we're doing in Louisiana. Right. And that I would imagine that's you coming in to support them and they want you to use their curriculum. What if the curriculum doesn't support the teaching methods that you're really pushing? So how do you adapt what you do to work with the curricula that they're expecting you to work with? Or do you just say at that point, we're not going to work with you because we can't make, we can't make it work, we can't make it fit? So I think, Karen's like the work that you were a part of, without saying the name, I know from the elementary perspective, the curriculum that was eventually adopted there. And we start, remember when we started, we, they had no curriculum, right? Right, like, exactly. And then they adopted a curriculum, which, which was not an ideal curriculum from my experience using that curriculum. Right. <laughs> um, I would agree with and, you. <laughs> but but that was that was part of the goal though was like how can you take this curriculum and showcase the pieces that you can and how you facilitate it in the classroom so that you are really um, engaging your students in the practices and that you are demonstrating the teaching practices, right? Like this is the resource that has been adopted. Now, how do you utilize this tool as a tool to help your students understand the math content? Which, I mean, is it's not an easy thing to do, right? But if we can help districts or school, whatever the, the component of the system is that does have not the best curriculum, if we can help them use that curriculum in a way that actually is engaging the students in the mathematics, then that's going to be a huge win. And they're definitely going to see an impact on student achievement in math if, you know, we have that opportunity. So I, I don't think that that would be a barrier where we'd say no, because that would be a missed opportunity. But it would definitely be more of a challenge with the teachers because 
teachers like to follow their curriculum and you're asking them to basically change it a little bit. And even honestly with like Louisiana where, you know, their high quality, what they've identified as high quality tier one curriculum is generally in line with what's identified as high quality through ed reports. I don't remember what ed reports highest tier is. Let's say it's they use the term high quality that we're still telling them, don't pick this up and use this as a script. Like you still need to be thoughtful and take the time to really think about how you're going to tweak or adapt this curriculum to meet the needs of the students in your classroom, because nobody has the same students in their classroom. And you're never going to be able to get through these lessons from start to finish if you just do it like implement it like a script. So even when we might have a more ideal situation where the curriculum um, is more in line with best practices, we, we still want teachers to be thoughtful about like, okay, how do I use this as a resource to best meet the needs of my students? Right. And it's it's almost, I mean, just from my own experience with you guys, it's it's you're giving teachers the the right to use their professional judgment and make changes and do things that they know are right for their students, even if technically it's not in the curriculum or whatever. And that sometimes is, is in conflict with the message that they get from their districts, right? When their districts say, hey, we've invested in this high quality curriculum, we want you to implement it, you know, start to finish, pay, you know, front to back. And, you know, what we want to do is empower teachers to do, you know, just what Jackie said, to assess the needs of the particular students that they have at the time and make wise decisions, be, you know, informed consumers of the curriculum that they're using. I think, I feel like that kind of brings the conversation full circle to where that's why ideally our work would be across the system, working with leaders of all levels so that we're making sure that there's a consistent message going out. I agree. I agree. I really like the, the, the systems approach versus the piece, you know, that are just the teachers or just the leaders. I, I, I agree with you. So I'm noticing our time here and kind of bringing it to a closure. Is there anything that either one of you wants to basically say to our teacher leaders and our coaches out there, our administrators, like any advice as as they're thinking about making some changes in how teachers are teaching mathematics or science, Um, anything from your experiences that you would be helpful I would say keep um, open lines of communication between administrators and teachers and administrators, you know, listen to your teachers and learn from your teachers and learn from the professional learning that you're asking your teachers to participate in so that you can be informed and support them. Jackie, anything? I'm thinking, I feel like this is probably the hardest question you have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, Greenhouse. Give him the hard question. I've been throwing softballs for the last hour. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, Tim, if you had any other questions for them. Well, I do, but we're out of time. I always have like a list of questions that come up over the course of the conversation. I'm like, oh, I still want to ask like, Jackie at some point. You you said something and then you quickly detoured and then came back on point. And you, because you used the word misconception and then you said, all right, I'm trying not to use the word misconception, alternate conception. Can I unpack that for a second and talk a bit about why that's a conscious choice of yours? So I think that um, we do a lot of work around growth mindset and I'm trying to be more conscious about the language that I'm using because there's bias hidden in the things that I'm saying, even though I want to say that I, I think by calling it a misconception, that's taking away 
what I believe that this, there, there is a nugget of understanding in what this student did. And by calling it a misconception, it makes it sound like there is no understanding there, right? Like this kid didn't get it. And when I'm talking to teachers and saying, let's go around and look for misconceptions and we're going to build off of those, what I really want you doing is going around and looking for different levels of understanding so that we can build off of them, right? Which is a much more asset-based, I'm making the assumption that there is some level of understanding of every student in this room. And I want to build off of that. And I want to help students grow from wherever their level of understanding is versus calling it a misconception which is like, okay, go around the room and look for all of the, look for different types of wrong answers that we're going to use. So in my mind, what I want teachers to do is to go around and look for those different levels of understanding and build off of it versus I, I think how it could be interpreted. And by using that word misconception, teachers might be walking away thinking, let me look for different types of wrong answers. Does that make sense? I'm just trying to be more conscious. And actually, the way you're describing it as, Instead of saying misconceptions, let's look for different levels of understanding. I mean, I think that's how you should, I think you've already figured out your wording right there. But Tim, what I was going to say is this reminds me of our conversation with Olga. We had an interview with Olga Torres and she said that she stopped calling her students mistakes. So misconceptions, mistakes, and instead called them celebrations because from them they can learn. So the students started saying, oh, I have a celebration. And from there... They looked at the celebration, unpacked it, and built on it. So a different way <laughs> to think about misconception or mistakes is from that asset approach versus deficit approach. I like it. Another example, um, just a conversation that we had recently was trying to think about, you know, when we're talking about like remediation or reteaching, like trying to come up with a different word for that. And just talking, I just had a meeting with some of the leaders in Louisiana, and they're trying to make a shift from actually calling that, what was the word that they told me in Nasi? I've already forgotten it. Um, acceleration, like we're moving forward with these students. Like they're trying to come up with a word that's more of an asset-based word instead of this label that we've gotten. I mean, I guess it's just part of our work again is around growth mindset. And I want to be using words that are more asset-based and going to pr promote more of that growth mindset to help shift the thinking of a lot of the leaders and teachers that we're working with as well. Amen. I totally agree. I totally agree. I just wanted to call it out because when you said it, I'm like, I want to make sure we make that point because I think it's a really important point to make. Well, I think we've come to the end of our time and I really want to thank both of you, Jackie and Shelly, for joining us and sharing all of your expertise and amazing thoughts and uh, suggestions. Uh, we really appreciate the information about the Dana Center. We will include a link to the Dana Center and some of the book that Tim mentioned um, to sell as human and other resources if you're interested in reaching out to the Dana Center and getting some support for your initiatives as well. I'm sure Jackie and Shelly would appreciate that. So thank you very much, Jackie and Shelly, for joining us. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to hear that the Dana Center is doing so well and such phenomenal work. Still. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please make sure to follow us um, on our social media and to check out our website where you can see all of our past episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Um, that's 180days.education. And we will hopefully talk to you soon or hear, hear you soon. I don't know how to end. I need to have a better ending. <laughs> I want to say we'll see you soon. I said we'll see you soon, but that's just not a good ending because I'm not going to see anybody. There will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out against research, who 
seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.